everyone, I'm Jen Malat, and I'm sitting here in Freshfield's newest office in Silicon Valley. And even though we're sitting in the US today, we're going to talk about the CMA and the EC and whether they are the new gatekeepers to high profile acquisitions, including acquisitions of US targets. So I'm joined by three of my colleagues to talk us through it. First, we have Alan Ryan, who's an antitrust partner in our office here in Silicon Valley. Hi, Alan. Hello. Thank you for having me. Then we have Bertrand Gurren, who's a counsel based in our office in Berlin, who's currently seconded to Silicon Valley. Hi, Bertrand. Hi, Jen. Hi, everyone. And then we have Megan Yates, who's an associate in our London antitrust practice, who's here visiting us today. Hi, Jen. Great to be here. So maybe just for a brief introduction, why are we talking about this? Why is it important to you? Um, you know, in recent years, what we've seen is that there are a number of high-profile acquisitions of U.S. targets that have been completely derailed by the competition authorities outside of the U.S. Uh, in some cases, this has involved the CMA or the European Commission diverging from the analytical approach that the U.S. enforcement agencies are using uh, that lets them identify issues beyond those that the U.S. regulators have picked up on. So, you know, something like the Dow DuPont transaction, where the commission focused on an innovation theory of harm that was really kind of outside the realm of what the U.S. agencies were looking at at the time. But in more recent years, we have also seen um, an alignment in the approach of the authorities to blocking transactions, where there is an emerging trend of the EC and especially the CMA potentially doing the dirty work of blocking deals where it's potentially more difficult for U.S. regulators to do so based on existing precedent. So here we have deals like uh, Illumina Grail, which is pending, and Saberfair Logics. You know, a key factor in this trend is the increasingly broad approach to jurisdiction of the EC and the CMA to let them call in for review transactions that might previously not have been reviewed by one of those regulators. And they're also focusing on catching killer acquisitions, which is something you've heard us talk about on this podcast a number of times. But they're also reacting to a much broader concern about under-enforcement, especially in the tech sector, and a perception that previous concentrations might have snuck under the net without serious review. We see certain sectors really in focus here, tech, as I mentioned, and life sciences, but it's important to understand that this approach can factor into a number of different sectors. So really, in any deal, you need to be on the lookout for this. Thank you, Jen. One of the big changes that we've seen in the enforcement landscape is that with the new administration, multilateralism is back in play. And the foreign authorities are very key to be seen to be making multilateralism work. So we now have a system in which the dynamic has changed from the interagency cooperation that we've had now for, frankly, well over a decade, and it's been very good at working level, the relationship between the European Commission and the DOJ and the FTC has always been good and has remained good at working level. But now at political level, it's not just cooperation on helping each other out on your own individual case, but it's helping each other's agents, the other agencies out on helping them get to the result that they want to. And that's a big change here because it's no longer the process which is important, it's the outcome that's important. How can we help you get to the result that you want? How can we use our procedure to help you achieve your result and vice versa? And that's a completely new dynamic that we've never had before. Yeah. And I mean, thanks, Alan. It's, it's obviously a very thorny issue to unpick. But I think, you know, before we get into the substance of what's happening on these deals, maybe it makes sense to talk a little bit about how the CMA and the EC are pulling these deals in front of them in the first place. And Bertrand, maybe you can talk a little bit about 
what's happening with the Article 22 referral process in the EC because we're seeing obviously a lot of changes into how that's being used very recently. Yeah, absolutely. The pattern we see in Europe is that competition authorities really want to focus on the right deals, not necessarily on the big ones, but on the right ones. So to summarize what this is all about, so Article 22 gives member states the possibility to refer transactions to the European Commission, i.e. to ask the European Commission to review those deals. This is not a new tool. It was introduced at a time where not all EU countries had a merger control regime. However, it has been relatively rarely used in the past. To lodge such referral requests, the member state or the member states have to explain why they think that the transactions threatens to significantly affect competition within their territory. But what you need to know is that member states were in fact discouraged by the European Commission to lodge referral requests when they themselves had no originary jurisdictions because the thresholds were not met. And, and Bertrand, that last point you made is really interesting because my understanding is that it's that that very point where there's a bit of a change of approach right now. Exactly. This is exactly what changed. What is now new is the European Commission changed that policy. So the law has not changed, but the approach changed. The EC last year explicitly stated it would start accepting referrals from national competition authorities, even if they themselves had originally no jurisdiction over the case. And the rationale for that is that they actually want to catch the right deals. So deals about future products, about innovation, competition, about killer acquisitions, etc. So look, this means then that in the future, we can expect a number of deals which otherwise wouldn't have been subject to merger control scrutiny in Europe. For example, when you do your basic assessment and you see that there are no sales, no revenues in any country in Europe, and no assets in any country in Europe, you can legitimately assume that you have zero market share in any European market as well. This means that there's no predictability now in the initial assessment that you make of the transaction and that any transaction, even with zero sales revenue market share in Europe, could be reviewed by the European Commission. And in fact, it could even be prohibited and certainly delayed. What are the main drawbacks of this, um, of this procedure? Yeah. I see three main consequences. The first consequence is that potentially it means significant delays for a deal. Why? It's because there's a lengthy timetable attached to that procedure. I don't want to get into the details here, but just to summarize, a member state that wants to refer a transaction to the Commission must lodge its request with the Commission within 15 working days on the date on which either the deal was notified nationally to them or if no notification is required because the national merger control thresholds are not reached, 15 working days after the date on which the transaction has been made known, that's the law, made known to the member state concert. That criterion is quite vague, we'll come to that in a minute. Then there is a succession of waiting periods during which the Commission informs the other member states, the parties, then a member state can join a referral made by another member state, then the Commission has 10 final working days to decide whether to accept to review the deal or not. So you have to add all that to the transaction timetable, and this can take months until you effectively get a clearance in case the European Commission wants to review that deal. The second consequence, and I would argue that's the main problem, is the uncertainty which this new approach brings. Because there's uncertainty on the question whether a deal might eventually be subject to merger control approval in Europe or not, despite thresholds not being reached. 
And then there's a question of when you can expect that a deal might be subject to such escalation. In the case where no national notification is required, then the member state must lodge its request within 15 working days on the date on which the transaction is made known to it. But that triggering event is unclear. The consensus now is that made known implies that a member state has at its disposal sufficient information to judge whether a deal can threaten competition or not. But we could speak half an hour about this. At what time and how do you get that sufficient information? So it could be quite easy for a member state to argue very late in the game that the transaction was not sufficiently made known to it, so it still can lodge a request. And then there's obviously a, a final consequence is that this whole threat of an Article 22 procedure has an impact on the decision whether to close or not a transaction. Because what you need to know is that the famous prohibition on gun jumping also kicks in under Article 22. Namely, the parties are not authorized to close a transaction as soon as the EC has informed them that a member state has lodged a referral request. So if your deal has not closed, you can be stuck with that procedure and with the gun jumping prohibition. Yeah, and look, the European Commission has recently published new guidance on the new approach to Article 22. That guidance is welcome, but actually the added value of it is quite limited. Let's focus on two messages, maybe. First, the Commission invites parties which think their deal could be targeted by such procedure to come forward with information. And the Commission says it would give early indications whether it sees that the deal is an appropriate candidate for an Article 22, so we have to welcome that. On the other hand, when you go to the Commission, you obviously flag your deal to the Commission, so you have to weigh the pros and cons of approaching the Commission for such an informal uh, consultation. Then another thing which is useful to know is that the Commission recently said that it would generally not consider a referral appropriate where more than six months has passed after the implementation of that concentration. Useful to know, still it's partly helpful because there is still obviously this 15 working days deadline for member states to lodge a request. So member states can still by law authorize to lodge a request even later than that. And second, the question is how do you define the triggering event for the implementation of the concentration where that closing of the transaction has not been publicized? There's a lot of questions about that. We could do an entire postcard on that topic. But I mean, concretely now, I mean, we have one case in particular, Elimina Grail, which, uh, which is concerned by that procedure, transaction which was not notifiable anywhere in Europe. The target Grail had zero revenue generating activity in Europe. But now the fact is they are now potentially facing a prohibition decision by the EC. Obviously, now they are contesting at court level that uh, Article 22 should have been applied. There's an action at the EU General Court asking for annulment of the decision of the European Commission to accept the referral. One can imagine that some of Illumina's arguments may be that the Commission's interpretation of Article 22 is not consistent with the principles of legal certainty, of the subsidiary principle between EC and member states, and the whole debate which will obviously follow quite closely. Well, I mean, thanks for that, Bertrand. I mean, obviously, a whole lot happening on this front in Europe. But Megan, I think we've let you sit quiet too long on what's happening in the in the UK. So can you talk 
a little bit about how, I mean, in, in the UK, there hasn't been a change in the thresholds, but there has been a little bit of a change recently in how broadly the CMA seems to be applying its thresholds to call in deals that it wants to look at. Yeah, Jen, now that's exactly right. And I think the CMA has really been earning itself the reputation as one of the most aggressive regulators in the world. And I think this is really driven in, in part by, by two things. One, as you've already touched on, Jen, the very expansive concept of jurisdiction that we're seeing the CMA use, and two, the CMA's approach to its substantive assessment. So just before going into kind of more detail on those points, it's worth noting that the UK is actually technically a voluntary regime. But this is really not the case in practice. And closing over a CMA review or having the CMA call your deal in post-closing can have extremely burdensome consequences and they will impose often global hold separate orders. Now, so if I go on to jurisdiction, the key takeaway is that you really shouldn't underestimate the CMA's ability to get its hands on your deal. And this is similar to the points Alan was making about the EU. This is even when there's no obvious nexus with the UK and the center of gravity of the deal can even be elsewhere. The CMA has flexed its already broad jurisdictional thresholds to assert jurisdiction over transactions that are worthy of review. So, Megan, before we talk a little bit more about how the, the CMA is using those thresholds, just for people who aren't familiar, can you explain what are the thresholds that the CMA looks at to call in a transaction? Yeah, of course, Jen. So the thresholds in the UK are firstly a turnover threshold. So the target's UK turnover must exceed 70 million in the last financial year. Or the much broader test that the CMA has been flexing is the share of supply test. So the merging parties must supply or acquire at least 25% of any goods or services in the UK or a substantial part of the UK, and there must be an increment to that share of supply. And I think when we're talking about this expansive approach to jurisdiction, the best way to illustrate this is actually just to look at a number of the recent examples. So in Roche Spark, despite only sort of tangential or prospective connection to the UK, the CMA found jurisdiction on the basis of Spark engaging in global R&D activities relating to the potential treatment of Heme in the UK. So they looked at the number of UK-based employees that were engaged in activities relating to the treatment of Heme, and or the number of UK patents procured from the Administrative Patent Authority in the UK. MasterCard Nets. They looked at the number of suppliers participating in a particular tender, and the CMA considered that only five of the eight tender participants were credible suppliers. The merging parties were two of them, and therefore the 25% threshold plus increment was met. And then the last case, which I think we have to touch on, is Sabre Fair Logics. Now, here jurisdiction was found on the basis the parties supplied IT solutions to airlines for the purpose of airlines providing travel services information to travel agents to enable travel agents to make bookings. So <laughs> it's a tongue twister. It's a tongue twister. And it, <laughs> it, the point there is that it does not have to align with the party's view of the market. The CMA has an incredible amount of jurisdiction to determine what the goods or services that it's using for this test are. Now, here... Sabre's share of the relevant services to UK airlines was already above 25% pre-merger. And then Fairlogix supplied these services to one UK customer, British Airways, 
in respect of one type of itinerary only, so interline segments in the context of Fair Logics's agreement with American Airlines. So arguably, these would normally be seen as American bookings. And it's also worth noting that Fair Logics never even invoiced British Airways for those 62 interline bookings. But the CMA still found that that was sufficient to assert jurisdiction and ultimately block the deal. And this case, in fact, went to the Competition Appeal Tribunal, where the Competition Appeal Tribunal upheld the CMA's approach to jurisdiction. They held that the purpose of the share of supply test is to identify these mergers where turnover thresholds are not met, but which are worthy of consideration. They have broad discretion in setting the criteria which identify the goods or services. They can also refine their view on jurisdiction during the inquiry. So the CMA used a different jurisdictional basis during its phase one inquiry and was able to, at the end and in the phase two review, refine its views. So jurisdiction isn't a gating item for the CMA to review your transaction. It can continue to develop its views on jurisdictions the whole way through. And the final point, which I've sort of already touched on, is that there's no de minimis threshold. So all they needed was to find that Fair Logics derived some value from these services. So having looked at that, there are a couple of key conclusions I think it's worth flagging to listeners. Firstly, the party should expect the CMA to flex its muscles if it looks like a case is interesting to review. So particularly in innovation-focused markets, parties should assess carefully and upfront the likelihood of CMA intervention rather than fixate on this question of jurisdiction. You should consider CMA engagement early and also have a coherent strategy, even if there is no obvious UK nexus. And lastly, if the CMA is going to claim jurisdiction, this will have significant impacts on transaction timing. So, I mean, thanks for that, Megan and Bertrand. I mean, I think you know, just taking a step back, what I what I think when I listen to you talk about this jurisdictional piece is that both the EC and the CMA have ways of getting their hands on deals if they want to look at them. And so the way we need to think about these deals, that companies need to think about these deals, is to think about how to position your global strategy for a transaction in light of the fact that there is a high risk for certain deals that the CMA or the EC might find ways to to pull them in and review them. And I think thinking through that global strategy and positioning is really key to optimizing overall outcome. And there's not a one-size-fits-all approach to that. It'll be very specific to your case, what regulators you want to go first, and how you want to drive the overall process to maximize the potential to get to the outcome you want to get to. That's right. That's exactly the issue. So the first question you have is, is there a possibility or likelihood that either the European Commission and or the CMA would want to get involved in the transaction? You need to consider that very carefully. That's, of course, related to the question as to whether the U.S. agency that's going to be reviewing this is likely to be very interested in the transaction. The two do uh, go hand in hand together. Uh, but then assuming that there is a, a possibility, then you will need a strategy for dealing with the CMA and the European Commission. The first question there is going to be, do you approach them proactively? And if so, how? Or do you wait and be reactive? There's no one-size-fits-all answer on that. Generally speaking, though, as Megan said, with the CMA, even though it's voluntary, de facto it is not if the 25% share of supply test is made. If there is a horizontal overlap and if there is interest from the U.S. agencies, then the prospect of CMA intervention is high. 
if you're going to go to the CMA, then that will obviously influence your question as to whether you're going to go to the European Commission at the same time, um, if it's not reportable anywhere in any of the member states. If, on the other hand, it's not going to go to the CMA, like Lumen Gray, which is a vertical transaction, so a vertical overlap doesn't give them jurisdiction. You either need 70 million or a horizontal overlap then that will obviously change your, your calculus. So you'll need to consider that very carefully. If you do go to them, then, though, then the question is how. And the other interesting point here is that this is now becoming much more like in the USA on a deal that's of interest to the agencies, which is actually making them understand credibly that you will litigate this thing if push does come too sharp, and that you can litigate credibly Obviously, that's an important issue in the USA. That is increasingly important in the EU and the UK as well now. So in the EU, the European Court has become increasingly uh, active in holding the Commission to high standard and actually setting out the um, boundaries of the merger regulation. And it's actually very much um, holding them to the Chicago school, first of all. And secondly, it is actually telling them that they need to do econometric work, etc., and that it can review it, which means that the commission itself is actually now more concerned about the appeal. Now, obviously, it's different because it's the commission blocks the deal and then you have to appeal a deal that is, that is prohibited at that point. It's not like in the USA where the agency has to go to court to adjunct the transaction. Nevertheless, that credible threat of an appeal is, is, is increasingly important, if not vital. Obviously, nobody wants to go to court, and we very much hope you don't do that. But just like in the US, you do need to show the litigation credibility there. The other thing why that's important is, of course, that as the court has constrained the commission to the four corners of the merger regulation, the commission is now going to have to go for novel theories of harm, arguing things like privacy, data, even throughout the media, are antitrust issues, and therefore that you can found an antitrust case based on the theory of harm over data or over privacy, for example. And again, the threat of a court scrutiny over that will be critical in keeping that, that discussion within sensible boundaries. That is basically the way the game is increasingly likely to have to be played. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting, Alan, because I think you know, the way we think about this is obviously the parties will have their own global strategy for how to get a deal cleared, but it's increasingly the case that the regulators will have their own coordinated international strategy for how they get to the outcome that they want to get to. That's absolutely right. You need a strategy and it has to be global. So even if you have a US to US deal, the US antitrust procedure is no longer the uh, most important, it's not even the primus inter pares anymore. We have cases on the go at the moment where the action has basically shifted to uh, the European Commission. So in the case of Illumina Grail, I think it would be a fair observation to say that the gating issue uh, for that deal to proceed is the European Commission. In the case of Sabre Fair Logics, it was the UK. Uh, on that, and therefore, these processes have to be given at least as much importance as the US, particularly because the US agencies may actually want them to take it over and them to do the running. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that completely, Alan. And when we're talking about strategy, what we're really talking about is planning in some ways for all of this uncertainty that arises from the different use of these procedural tools and trying to anticipate and plan strategies for where the nexus of the review of your deal is actually most likely to materialize. And, you know, it's maybe worth saying a couple of words about 
what that actually means in practice. What do you do if you're sitting here with a deal trying to figure out how to navigate this process? And, you know, first and foremost, kind of back to basics is that early risk assessment and planning are critical. Um, as Alan just said, if you have a U.S. to U.S. deal, you cannot forget about the U.K. and the European Commission. You have to plan for whether they might get involved and in what way. It also means that if you have a deal that either doesn't trigger an EC filing or doesn't trigger member state filings in Europe, you need to conduct localized assessments, almost member state by member state in the EU to understand where there are potential risks that could arise and if any of those regulators are the ones who are potentially likely to refer a deal up to the EC or somehow otherwise try to make sure that it gets reviewed. And it's also worth kind of kicking the tires on these issues and rethinking the assessment periodically as you go through. I mean, Megan, you had mentioned that the CMA will reconsider the jurisdictional thresholds really throughout his assessment as it goes. And parties can do that as well as more information becomes available as you see how things are developing to think about and refine your strategy sort of almost on the go. I, I think that's exactly right, Jen. And I think the, you have to look at it not just through a classic antitrust lens. So antitrust has now become political. It's been part of electoral campaigns now in the United States and other countries. Margarita Vestaya was reappointed European Competition Commission, which is something that's never been done before. No commissioner has ever been reappointed to the same job. And she was reappointed on the basis that it's perceived that she was a trailblazer in her first term. And basically, the reappointment means more of the same for the next uh, five years. Now, politically, and remember, she's a politician. She's not an antitrust expert. She's a politician. She gives political direction to the cases. The case teams then at the European Commission have to take the case and do it according to the legal standard. That's where the legal strategy comes in. But she is coming at it from a position where she feels that the public perceive that the antitrust agencies have under-enforced recently, one, and two, that the antitrust agencies need to do something. And doing something is basically that issue. I don't think there's any consensus on what that something should be or whether that's actually a valid concern, but they feel that the public citizens expect them to do something. So we need to think about what the political angle is going to be. Essentially, what is the headline for them? Recognizing that they are speaking not really to a corporate audience, but to a much wider public audience. What is the political message they will want to give? Will they want to be seen to be intervening? Will they want to be seen to be doing something about it? And if yes, what can they do? And it also means then that as part of your strategy, you also need to consider owning the headline here as well. Now, that's also something that's counterintuitive in many places where you think it's the legal process. Nevertheless, from a political angle, they play the process out in public, and therefore you need to have considered how to deal with that as part of your overall strategy. And Ellen, I think that owning the headline is, is a real point in the UK as well when we think about killer acquisitions because there's been a real focus on persuading the authorities why your deal valuation is as high as it is. And for example, PayPal, iZettle was a real example where the parties were able to successfully persuade the CMA that the premium PayPal were willing to pay was in fact due to commercial synergies and a pro-competitive rationale rather than sort of is extinguishing a, a nascent or smaller competitor. I think that's right. And I just add one other thing, which is if you look at 
where the politicians are coming from. If you look at Saber Fair Logics, that was litigated in the US. It was there was a full trial in the US District Court um, for the injunction. The court declined to injunct the transaction after a you know a very thorough hearing, etc. The next day it was blocked in the UK, and publicly the reaction has been, oh, isn't the UK tough? You have to take the UK into account. The public reaction was not, wait a minute, what's going on here? After a thorough trial in the USA, the court declined to injunct. That wasn't the public discussion. The public discussion was more about focusing on the UK and its ability to basically block transactions, irrespective of US court hearings. And maybe one more kind of practical point reacting to all of the the important points that Alan and Megan are making on the political side is that the agencies are obviously very aware of all of these political implications and the headlines. And so when you think through what your strategy for a deal should be, it's also very important to make sure that any regulator, but probably especially the CMA, doesn't feel like it's being left behind, pushed to the side, being pushed out of what it thinks should be a central role in the assessment because potentially they will not react very positively to that, which we've seen on on some deals. There's also, you know, just a very practical process point worth noting here, which is there's a lot of uncertainty around some of this, and that can make drafting your CPs in your SPA much more difficult than it otherwise would have been. We're moving out of a world where you say the transaction is reportable in these six jurisdictions, thank you very much, and where you need to draft potentially a much more complex CP that caters for some of these possibilities that could arise but may not be clear at the uh, at the exact moment of signing. And the same holds true with regard to long stub dates, with regard to the inclusion of reverse breakup fees, uh, hello high water clauses. This all has an impact on the overall way you're going to negotiate and draft a contract with the other party. Well, guys, I mean, obviously, lots and lots to think about here. I think we could probably do 10 podcasts on this topic alone, but I think for today, uh, we will wrap it up. Uh, but thank you very much, Alan, Bertram, Megan, for taking the time to walk through all of this. Um, and thank you very much to all of you for listening. Next month in November, we'll have our foreign investment colleagues bringing you another episode of Essential Foreign Investment, giving you all the latest trends and development in the FDI space worldwide. Then we'll be back with you in December, where we'll see you for another episode of Essential Antitrust. Thank you, Jen. Thank you.